Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Bigger Picture, brought to you by the British Film Institute. I'm Henry. No Anna this episode, but we're delighted to welcome a special guest, screenwriter and director Shola Amu, here to talk about his new film, The Last Tree. But first, Shola, what we normally do at the top of the show is recommend something that we've been listening or watching. Would you like to do that for us? I would absolutely love to do that. What I've been listening to, I guess you could be considered an oldie, it's Kanye West's Yeezus album. I always go back to that record because for a lot of seasoned old school Kanye fans that record is kind of sacrilegious it's not really one they want to put in their top three Kanye records but I admire my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy I recognise that that's a perfect record but I think Jesus really is him pulling much deeper and much harder in real uncharted territory and Rick Rubin's production, the way he kind of reduces the beats that Kanye gave to him into this kind of like minimalist, but punk, ultra mix of different sonic styles and palettes. I still feel like that album sounds ahead of its time now. It's still full of ideas, songs like Black Skin Hair, all of those tracks still sound like they're the future of music, even as we approach 2020. A lot of people talk about filmmakers' work being tainted by their real-life behaviour. Just friends, just friends, and he's uh, a good man. Does Kanye Cup fall into that category for you? Can you listen to him and separate his politics from the music? It depends on how perfect we think we are, our creators or the people yeah. we, how perfect we want them to be. <laughs> um, I mean, it's such a tricky prospect when you think about artists and their work and we're obviously when you think about filmmakers like Polanski or Nate Parker this is where the conversation right can you separate I don't really put Kanye in that kind of space I think he said some outlandish things but I think there's a lot of um counseling culture out yeah. right now and if you listen to what he was trying to say you could kind of see the nugget of a point it's just that his articulation is terrible mm. a lot of the time but he's also growing like all of us if we cancel everyone who makes a mistake, 
we're going to lose a lot of art. I understand that it's part of the zeitgeist that we're in, that we're really going through all of these artists and doubling down on whether or not we can support them. And I think it's subjective, I guess, mm -hmm. to, to each individual. But for me, when I listen to Kanye, I hear all the greatness and I hear all the problems and I'm okay because that's who he is as a human being. Yeah. Speaking of the greatness and the problems, I'm known for my terrible segues, by the way. I've been watching... That was slip. <laughs> Thank you. I've been watching a series on The Guardian, which again has been running for a while. It's 10 years old. It's called Anywhere But Westminster. Hmm. It's basically a small, short series of video, politics videos made by old colleagues of me and Pete. It's everything wrong with Britain in one person, isn't it? John Domacos and John Harris. Anywhere But Westminster began 10 years ago, speaking to people on the street about politics and exploring the gap between politicians, the media and the rest of the country. And they go around the country talking about the country as it is rather than the country as politicians try and show it to us. I ain't getting no luck with jobs. You out of work at the moment? I am, yeah. I'm on universal credit. Are you? Benefit mashed it up for me. You know, sanctioned me from when they sanctioned you. You know, you get into debt. I'm homeless. Even though I don't look it, but I mean, I'm sofa surfing, I'm a single parent. Just in an era when the dialogue around politics has been completely hijacked by a group of posh boys from Westminster, mm. it's really refreshing to get out there and to see parts of the countries you never see talking mm. about what it's actually like on the ground. Basically, you get a sort of politics of low-level grievance, which tends to be aimed at particular groups of people. You'll probably guess who they are. Benefit claimants, immigrants. These people are not starving. They're never going to starve. They should. They probably buy cigarettes and then they go to the food bank. They, oh, they've got no. Uh, there's no excuse in this country to be hungry. First episode of this new series that is out now. It's really depressing because they just don't know what to ask people anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't know what we're asking people. If we ask them all the old questions, we know what all the old answers are, all right? And they haven't really got anything to say to us about anything because they don't know either. It's like the decimation of our country in terms of political dialogue has happened and we're living in the aftermath of it. So mm. it's a grim watch, but I definitely recommend it all the same. There's no sense of the gravity at the moment. It's just all a game. This is what when you put public schoolboys in charge. It's just all knockabout and bon mots and quips and all that. And there's no sense that, you know, there are people who, who, who are really, really worried that their Parkinson's medication is going to be available, or there's going to be food shortages. This is all, this is all being talk, talked about, a sort of Aristo knockabout. It's sickening. That's what it is. On to the last tree. The film follows Femi, a British Nigerian kid on a journey from the Lincolnshire idyll of his foster home to his birth mum's inner city flat. And then on as Femi grows into adulthood to Lagos to experience a taste of yet another home. Femi is of all of these places, but fits into none of them. You missed my class today. Again. I'm not in the mood today, sir. I'm not in the mood either. You come in here stinking of weed, got specks of blood all down there. I told your mum you wouldn't fail, not on my watch. That's where you fucked up. Well, what do you want from me? Always a tough guy. Your mum told me about your foster care. You know, I can't imagine what that must have been. That your business. Confusion. Yeah, I'm what? Don't know shit about it. So stop right there. Or what? Shola, I've read a lot of places you talking about how this is a kind of autobiographical story, but I'm wondering how kind of autobiographical it is. Yeah, uh, it's semi-autobiographical. So I was fostered and I moved from a kind of, you could say, rural, monochromatic racial space yeah. to an urban, like multicultural South London environment. 
But what I did is I also met up with uh, other British Nigerians, had interviews with them and really built a sense of their story. And what you get with The Last Tree is a bit of my story, a bit of their story in what I guess we could call like a new reality. That was very much the writing process to some degree and getting to a place where I felt close enough for the degree of authenticity it required with enough distance to have some objectivity at the same time. And why was that distance quite so important, do you think? I think it's super important. The last tree had a long gestation period of like four years in development. And I think that process really was finding the right calibration Mm -hmm. for that kind of narrative. How personal do you go? You know, for me, it felt most comfortable engaging with the true essence of some of my narrative, but mixing it with other people's stories as well. The film's incredibly stylistic throughout and the three phases of the film are separated into different styles. What really surprised me as a white viewer watching the Lincolnshire part in particular is how sunny and nostalgic it feels. And Femi, it doesn't seem he's experienced any racism or at least any overt racism in that context. Is that true of a lot of the people you spoke to when you were writing the film? Everyone had their own take on what their experience was. And for some it was that and for others it really wasn't. And what was interesting in this narrative is this film is all laced in Femi subjectivity. And from a child's perspective, as it is memory sometimes, you kind of almost like there's a glossiness almost to how we interpret certain memories. And it was important for me to show that kind of subjectivity early on in the film. And Lincolnshire plays into that environment so well because it's sun-kissed, it's amazing landscapes, open fields, almost idyllic childhood stuff that, you know, I guess that you maybe almost associate with white kids to some degree. (laughs) Um, And so it was great, you know, even with the way we start, you know, we start with an image of one white kid, second white kid, and then bang, it's the black kid, and that's who the story's going to be. The question of subversion was always at the heart of it. It's like placing him in a space you can't, you're not used to seeing him and it's and context you're not used to seeing them at the same time. And it's subversive as well because often in British cinema you're used to seeing the countryside as somewhere that is, I don't know, either horrible or horrifying yeah. or quite mystical. And in this case it's plainly a safe space where he can have a lot of fun with yeah. his mates and it's when he gets to London that restrictions start falling upon him because yeah. of his race and because of his culture. I wouldn't change big part of you for all the world. In a way you're all my boys. But we're not. Wait. I promise. There's so much we can do here now that you're home. How are you, love? You settling in, okay? Yeah. I did not raise you to be rude. You didn't raise me. I miss you. I miss you too. Again, is that reflective of what people were telling you, that London is very much this setup where you have to be a certain thing for certain people? If you're black, there are certain kind of ideas and notions that people attribute to that. And almost cultural codes of conduct before you even get to the specificity of whether you're Nigerian or Jamaican or all of that sort of stuff. And if you're black but alien to that because you've not had that experience, because you've been fostered or for whatever other reason, coming into that environment, knowing those codes and conducts and having to understand them at a rate can be very disorientating Mm. and that's what we were trying to capture with the way Femi that world was to some degree all he had known that Lincolnshire kind of outside outdoor plains all of that and then you bring him into a space where that's multicultural but it's full of racial conflict cultural conflict and a completely different environment architecturally in every sense of the word 
Send angels to encamp around Ulufemi. Teach him to be the head and not the tail. School's good, man. What are you gonna do after? You can work for yourself and be free. You wanna be free? I don't feel like we're living in the same house. I come, you go. Look, I'm sorry you're lonely, but it ain't my fault he's not here. You don't know anything. I know he left. And one day, I'll leave too. It's interesting, there's a line that his mum says, and she's first-generation Nigerian, and she says, when he's about to leave the house, please don't go out there yet, because I haven't taught you. Yes. And it feels like she's having to teach him the way of the city. Yeah, codes of conduct. This is essentially what it is. He's completely fresh to that. And that's where it becomes universal, because anyone can relate to that. If you're moving from one space to another and you don't know the codes of conduct, and then you add layers of cultural dissonance, it becomes a real tricky kind of nebulous. Man's got to do what he can to protect his family. Or brothers now. You really think those boys are your friends? I didn't bring you here for this. I just want what was best for you. You've said before that it was important that this was set in London in the 2000s and that yeah. London was going through something at that time. Could yeah. you explain what that was for you? I mean, what kind of culture was building up? That kind of late noughties, early 2000s energy was when I was growing up. So that was, I wanted to reflect that type of energy, which is in many subtle ways different. And one thing I'll I'll make a point of saying is the kind of intra-cultural beef that you see in the film. Femi's tease because of his African-sounding nature of his name over, say, an anglicized name like Dean, you know. I remember growing up in a time where, you know, it wasn't cool to proclaim how your Africanness or your Nigerianness or whichever specific country you're from. In the way that I feel it is now, in terms of the rise of Afrobeats and, and how all of these kind of little nuances, you know, are very cool, are very popping at the moment. Mm. And so that's why it was important to be of that era where it felt like, yeah, if your name is more anglicized, like a Dean or a a Tony uh, <laughs> it's going to be a lot easier than Oliwafemi or Oliwafemi do you yeah. know but I think just seeing the rise of particularly Nigerian consciousness mm-hmm. in terms of an art politics and culture and how that's taken over the world led by music and how cool that is that's a real distinction I make from then to now what do you think changed? the internet yeah I attribute a lot I mean my generation I think is the last to grow up with an analog yeah. knowing what it was to be analog i grew up with dial-up still you know wasn't on social to my early 20s i guess social media and stuff like that what the internet allowed was subculture to become dominant culture to some degree because you could connect to all of your different tribes and groups in the way that you couldn't and i think that was really important in terms of the proliferation of music in terms of the proliferation of even cinema and nollywood and all that sort of stuff Detective Inspector Danny Waziri. Ooh, that native police officer. Leave for a coty first thing in the morning. I require this case wrapped up for the 1st of October, Independence Day. Yes, sir. Who would want to commit such a depravity? People watching that stuff online. I think the internet is the importance of it cannot be understated in that kind of cultural shift. It's interesting we all have these cultural signifiers and that if you have that flexibility, I guess the world is opened up to you even more. I read something the other day where kids don't really understand the linear path of history and that's Mm. a positive thing. Like Mm. you can listen to a Beatles track. Let me take you down, cause I'm going... Then listen to a JME track. I'm JME. 
food on the crime scene. It doesn't really matter where things come from anymore. Mm, mm. But that can be quite discombobulating for people that, in our generation, I think, mm. who are very used to these strictures. Yeah, I mean, as everything, it has its pros and cons, you know. Yeah. It's like music is a mixtape now, you know, in the way that we stream. Remixes and, and the kind of mixtape culture of music was kind of like, again, subculture felt almost. Yeah. Where now that's just how we listen to music. Yeah. We stream it. Do you think the same is true with like visual culture with things like Netflix? That we're, Are we more likely to see... A filmmaker from Nigeria, for example, producing something that we can, uh, we the wider audience can all watch together. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's almost the tension between those who are pro Netflix and those who aren't, yeah. in a sense. And I'm caught somewhere in the middle, in the sense that, you know, I'm always gonna support the theatrical experience to some degree. You know, it's still the most high to see a film. Yeah, but Netflix has enabled filmmaking friends I know from Nigeria to have world audiences, global audiences in a way that was really hard to conceive before and highlight filmmaking in quote-unquote niche spaces. Yeah. You know, Netflix, I'm sure, will hit a sweet spot where everyone can see how useful it is. And definitely, I know for that creative individual in Lagos making films, wondering how he's going to get out to the world, it's a godsend. And you get these fascinating mixes from the African diaspora, of, like Top Boy, for example, right, mm. which has now been fostered by Drake yeah. and is on Netflix as a new series with much bigger budget and all yeah. that stuff. We're back, bro. Things have changed. I'm running the first night. Nah. Fuck that. Ain't nobody gonna try trouble with Summer House. Jamie, yeah? Let me give you a piece of advice. You're here to get mine. You wanna sell food, you sell my food. You don't sell nothing at all. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's always seemed weird, but makes sense to me that someone like Drake has connected so heavily to grime and taken that to another level as well. I mean, can you kind of explain the connections between those two? Is it just a, a black experience that is shared between cultures or, or how does that work? No, because it's like there's so many nuances and layers yeah. even in all of these cultures. The grime I always reference in two folds. One, it is our best, if you could call it, black British export yeah. culturally. That's probably the number one way ahead of cinema 
in terms of its progress. It's very DIY, it's very specific, but it's that concept of the specific becoming universal in a way. It's so specific, so of an experience, but it's relatable to a individual like Drake because he can recognize certain themes in that experience where he grew up or certain other places in America where they can recognize that experience where they've grown up, you know. And in that sense, it becomes universal. The nuances and the layers and that, obviously, the accents and the way it unfolds is different, but there's some core pillars that yeah. people can hang their flag on and say, I recognize that. I think grime being our best cultural export, I always, to some degree, in awe of it. I'm like, I'd like to see Black British cinema, if that is a thing, make a kind of movement in the way that grime has made a movement. Yeah. Or, or in the way that Afro beats has made a movement, you know? I always joke with my composer, Shego Nakinola, that I'm just a fellow musician who makes films because I really wanted to <laughs> I really wanted to, <laughs> I really wanted to do music for a long time and once I wasn't doing music I was like doing music journalism yeah. uh, so I, a lot of my references go back to music and in the way that, that you know those movements the way grime is and it's not even hit its, its full power yet mm. it's still on the ascent you know there was a period where artists in that scene were trying to go mainstream and because of the internet ultimately when that mainstream push didn't happen they just doubled down and did it all, went fully independent and was able to access audiences in their own way and fashion, keep it as real as it ever was. Yeah. And that's when it's made its biggest breakthrough. And also be pioneering as well. Yeah. I remember, I think it was about a decade ago, that Wiley was one of the first people to like live stream himself on, on the internet. I know, no, I don't, my friends are bus drivers. I don't laugh at them. I respect them. They go to work. My friends who do any job, I'm just like thankful to God that I ended up doing this job where like the money's crazy and he like followed himself around with a camera for a few days yeah you know when pe when people talk about the decline of like indie music yeah. or there's nothing punk because like, essentially indie music became very middle class and like all movements kind of cannibalize itself yeah. to some degree there is nothing more punk than grime that is what it is now you know it's like when kanye was saying in that crazy ass interview with zane Lowe, rap the new rock and roll mm, mm. we culture Rap is the new rock and roll. We the rock stars. It's been like that now for a minute. It's been like that for a minute, Hedy Stamane. <laughs> it's been like that for a minute. You knew what he was saying, yeah. though. You, yeah. know, you knew what he was trying to articulate again. Yeah. Maybe, again, you might have, might have not articulated it in the, in the most eloquent way, but you knew what he was trying to say. Is there a particular musical artist that inspired or played into this film? Because when you watch the film, there's a real feeling that you're dealing with almost rhythmic beats when it comes to tone and that you're layering, first of all, with the sound design, but also the look of the thing. Like, it seems to be running on a rhythm for each section of the film. Yeah. So I wondered if there was particular music or maybe, I don't know, other types of audio that have inspired the different trajectories that we see in the film. Yeah, you know, I'm a big, almost, I love it if Shagun could articulate it because he will fully give you the 101 and what that was. But for me, it was very much about our music always kind of veers between the space of composition and sound design. Mm -hmm. There's always a point in the soundtrack where you're like, is this sound design or is this music? Working with Shagun as the composer and, and our sound designers at Creativity, it was really fun having the spot in sessions where you're watching the film all together and you're not haggling, but you're working that out. Mm. You know, is this music? Is this sound design? Oh, but your music sounds like sound design. Yeah. But like, like, Is there a difference? <laughs> is there a difference? <laughs> yeah. 
I like to try and collapse the music all into a singular kind of mood if I can that has its peaks and troughs but then what's great about the last three soundtrack is then we also punctuate that with some iconic pop songs yeah and we veer from it some kind of dystopian electronic music to classical music it's all to work to the same motion of creating an immersive experience and keeping you in the subjectivity of um, Femi's head few people have described the film as pertinent to the moment and almost like a Brexit film. And last episode, we talked about Bait, which you could argue, Mark Jenkins' film, which you could argue is very much a Brexit film. Do you see this as a comment on Brexit? Is it too trite to call it that? I think it's a comment on identity, personal, on the micro, and one could make a macro kind of connection. Because Femi is of different places. He's of different landscapes and he's figuring out his identity in each space. And the major breakthrough for the character comes when he's able to reconcile all of these different identities, acknowledge past traumas, acknowledge history, some that had been denied to him. And that's when he's able to make progress. And I think, you know, if we're using this a really extended metaphor or the film is a really extended metaphor, you can kind of see the Femi ke- is <laughs> you can kind of see the parallels <laughs> yeah. that some people are, are pulling out there. Yeah. But it's not a ham fisted thing for us. We're not kind of um hitting you on the head with that. It's all metaphorical, it's all in the energy of the film. And if you perceive that from it, then I'm not gonna tell you not to. Femi's um journey is very much about trying to find somewhere to fit in, or at least reconcile his identity with what people want it to be and i wondered if that was in part true of you in the film industry in that the film industry still is based on very traditional structures and often doesn't know what to do with black british talent and how to export it as we talked about already so how are you finding kind of navigating a a route in the british film industry um i think it's yeah it's a really good question um sometimes for a period at least it may have felt like there was only like maybe three or four types of british film right like the period film, yeah. the rom-com. Uh, this one's a dying breed, but the East End gangster. Oh. Do you miss him? Uh, <laughs> I'm a Jason Statham fan, so you know oh, yeah, I mean? me too. <laughs> <laughs> I even went and watched Hobbs and Shaw just because like, you know what I mean? I had support, you know? Yeah. And it's not like You've seen were... Crank, right? I have seen Crank's Crank. I have seen films. Crank. That's so actually good. an art film, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. Talk uh, about rhythm and pace. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there's the Brit Grip film, the kind of grey sky, everything complete kind of yeah. ostensibly social realist thing so and you know i think for me it's i've always kind of looked globally at cinema mm-hmm. so some of my favorite filmmakers uh, my favorite filmmaker in the uk is definitely lynn ramsey because yeah. i feel like she i like the filmmakers who kind of fall between the cracks of those four descriptions and she falls between the cracks of those four, four descriptions yeah. Yeah. one of my favorite films from last year was you were never really here state senator albert vato his teenage daughter's missing what's the lead you got an anonymous text with an address. I've heard of these places. They said you were brutal. I can be. I want you to hurt them. Each time she makes work, she's expanding language and texture and trying to uh, get to a place that is very different to whatever you can kind of call British film to some degree. And beyond that, you know, Jack Odiard, Park Chang-wook, filmmakers like that are really have been really important in just opening up possibilities of language. You know what I mean? There's a whole, I could wax lyrical about 
all the African-American cinema that I grew up watching and engaging with as well. And to some degree, creatives in Nigeria, people who are making films in such lo-fi contexts, but making super experimental and engaging work. That's not just Nollywood. Yeah. You know, you've got to look at people like CJ Obasi and ABBA, making interesting work. They tell you, say, I see them with my two Korokoro ladies. You don't even talk anything. If you don't forget, say, Aisha na Ashia B. I don't want to concern. No worry. It was so concerned, just to watch everything I film. <laughs> I don't go. Mm -hmm. Like, don't be never So I've always had different reference points. And I don't think you come out with your first thing being a moving image if you're like trying to fit into <laughs> if you're trying to neatly yeah. fit into one of those four things. Yeah. Um so I felt like I pitched my flag very clearly in terms of like, okay, um, he doesn't do that. And I think that's been pretty clear to everyone. And so therefore, I felt like I've been given quite a cool amount of latitude in terms of the films I'm making and what I can do and what I feel like I should be able to do. Yeah. And finally, I did want to ask, there's a couple of key scenes where Femi is shown listening to The Cure, and yeah. an incredibly romantic scene where he shares a song with a girl he's interested in. Yeah. Why The Cure? Femi is a, particularly as a teen, is in a space where we're playing with this concept of masks, who he's meant to be, as opposed to who he is. You know, as a young man, when you're fronting and maybe acting harder than you need to be because you're in a hyper-masculine environment, there are certain cultural signifiers that mean you're meant to act a certain way. And there's points in our narrative where this mask completely slips. And I just liked The Cure's music for quite some time. And it's very grandiose. But I also like Robert Smith's presentation, yeah. this concept of wearing mask, and and it really played into what I felt we were exploring with Femi and his subjective state. Who is he? Who does he pretend to be? And where do we see the slippage between? That's it from us this episode. Special thanks to Shola Amu for joining us. The Last Tree is out in UK cinemas from September 27th. Head to the BFI's YouTube channel for a Q&A with Shola about the film, which took place at the BFI South Bank. Our show, The Bigger Picture, brought to you by the BFI, is hosted by me, Henry, and usually hosted too by Anna. And she's on at Anna B. Demented on Twitter. I'm at Henry H. Barnes. If you go down to the woods today, you might catch our producer, Peter Sell, trying to capture audio evidence of that thing about the tree falling and the sound and whatever. Anyway, more of Pete's work at petersell.co.uk. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, your last line this week comes from a band featured in The Last Tree with an apt description of anyone involved in making this podcast. So wonderfully, 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 wonderfully pretty. And in the absence of Anna, I'm just going to stare at an empty chair, which is scowling at me as well. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.